Hello, this is the AI and L&D Insights podcast, where learning, development, and performance support meets cutting-edge artificial intelligence. This is where we cut through the buzz, we explore innovations, we discuss potential, but we also unmask limitations. My name is Marcus Bernhard, and today's guest on the show is Jeroen van Houten. He's Chief Technology Officer and Chief Product Officer at TechWorld. A really interesting organization, if you don't know them yet, out of Belgium on a global journey to revolutionize the skills landscape, leveraging AI. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation with you, Jeroen. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Marcus. Super happy to be here. And Jeroen, it's been an interesting year, hasn't it? This 2023, it's been a buzz about all things generative AI. We began with the text and now in recent weeks and months, we've seen more and more exciting images come in. When we look forward to 2024, when we're also going to see lots of budgets around AI, I think being released, adding to this buzz generally in the business world, what are the things that excite you about AI for next year? What, what do you see coming? What do you think is interesting to talk about? Yeah, I mean, this is a super interesting time for, for AI in general. I think from our perspective, what we've been sort of on the inside of the AI transition for quite some time, but I will say that basically it has gone very gradually and then very suddenly, especially in, in the public eye with, well, ChatGPT coming to attention, a lot of these generative models, like really sparking the imagination uh, of people everywhere. Um, and I think this is one of those classic cases where people are really, well, maybe overestimating the impact it will have in the short term, but really underestimating the impact it will have in the longer term. Because a lot of the, the demos that people are seeing, well, they're not necessarily ready to, to really be that standalone voice assistant that allows you to ditch every screen in your life by just talking to you. You know, those things are quite far away from, well, actually being super valuable and useful still. But the thing I think we will see in, uh, in the next year, especially, is that generative AI is really allowing us to unlock data uh, that we've never really been able to use before. Because for looking at the internet, essentially, we're just producing so much data continuously. And so much of that is essentially meant for human consumption. So it's structured. It's something that we find very easy to use. But up until today, computers have really struggled with. And I think that's really the step change that we're seeing here, where all of that data suddenly becomes so much more suitable for computer consumption. And we can start building applications off of that. And that's an interesting point you make there, because data for human consumption has been well-structured. And when we look at data that is for no one's consumption, really, no, no, not at least in a planned way. That, that is very unstructured. We also hear a lot about data discipline in organizations. So you just mentioned the usability of this data. How important then do you think going forward will data discipline be, or will AI be so powerful that having solved the semantics problem? the the unstructured data, even with bad data discipline, is going to become useful. I would say that AI will definitely help us fix mistakes in our data and sort of call out things that aren't right. Like, I think, for example, I saw a demo from Workday where they are saying that they will, well, go through your contract and figure out if you made any mistakes between the contract itself and sort of how it's logged in, in the system. Sort of calling out those mistakes, helping you even rectify it by proposing the whole workflow to adjust the contract to what it's supposed to be. So we're definitely getting there where 
uh, mistakes in the data can be spotted by basically AI acting a little bit like a private investigator crawling through the data. Now, at the same time, I think we cannot stretch that infinitely. The, the fact is that if you don't record something or you record something wrong, well, if it's just a believable error, then of course, AI is not going to be any better than a, than a human at figuring that out. So if, if I put your t-shirt size wrong in our system, well, there, there's really no way today's ge- uh, well, generative AI will figure out that that is the wrong, wrong value there. People's lives are starting to adjust. And I think this, this whole AI topic is one that we had to travel through and we had to get our brains to adjust to what is now possible, right? We all dove into systems. We played around, we, we tested them. We tried to break them. We did certain things that we found useful or interesting at the time. And I think our brains have changed over the last year where we start seeing, okay, this, these are applications where I'm now automatically thinking about a large language model that could help me with this and a, a chat GPT instance, or that I'm, I'm requiring an image for a presentation. For example, these things have become so useful. And then of course, we've just recently seen the launch of the Microsoft Copilot. That is of course going to now suddenly even if you've managed to keep away from this in your work, I mean, how, how many people don't at work have the office package that's going to have a much broader impact. What are your thoughts on the impact of that on, on work and on how humans see and work with AI going forward? I think it will have a really big impact in the long term. The, like this sort of idea of a conversational interface, it's not new, but it's the first time that we are really starting to get the technology to enable that. Uh, and as I said, like a sort of, well, super intelligent, all-round assistant. I don't think we're getting there just yet because, well, it's not just about being able to speak, but it's also about being able to act. I think there was this, this announcement of the, the Meta and Ray-Ban collaboration. So basically smart sunglasses that include like a, well, an LLM-driven AI assistant that you can talk to. And what, what struck me from their demo is that basically they're showcasing like, oh, you know, write a poem for me or make up an excuse for me to leave this party early. So they're like, well, asking questions that we would ask ChatGPT and sort of demoing the functionality. But it's not really useful in your uh, daily life just yet because your glasses, you know, they can't book you a ticket to the movies just yet. They can't actually go out in the world just yet to do something because we also don't trust these assistants to that level yet that we would just give them our credit card and say, you know, you just run my life. So we're sort of starting to test and explore things. But the sort of unconstrained assistant is really quite a bit out there still. Now, on the other hand, if we look at Copilot, that's where it becomes a lot more interesting because we're in this productivity environment, so the scope is much more narrow. And at the same time, we're also still there to validate things. And when we say, can you make me a PowerPoint slide or a deck that will help with these things, explain this story, represent this proposal that I already wrote up in a, in a Word document, that is a very different story because you're there to apply the finishing touches. But also, uh, there's a much easier way to sort of separate the, the experience layer and the content layer. And I think that is something that we will see in next evolutions of these generative models where, as well, where we will have a better division between where we get the content or like the actual information and how we represent it. Because we've all seen models like ChatGPT hallucinate and tell us things that definitely are not true. Because, well, there's a, a bit of a limit to language models, learning facts and actually sticking to the facts. Like they get better and better. Fundamentally, they're trained to make things look good. Now, how you can go about that is essentially that you have one system that is responsible for surfacing the truth 
and another model is responsible for representing it. And I think in these sort of productivity-based use cases, that's where the models become super useful. And it's also what I see in my own uh, applications. For example, I will, well, write in some bullets, like what I want to say in an article or in, in a blog post, in a message I want to send. I will make sure that I have the facts in there. And then I will say, can you just wrap this in a, in a nice flow? And it's just a little bit to my way of speaking. And it really speeds up the flow enormously. But I'm not tying the, well, the AI model to come up with the, the facts. And this has been one of the big concerns generally. When people are concerned, they're concerned about hallucinations. They're concerned about what it can get wrong. And depending on the environment that we're in, what that might mean and have as a consequence. So absolutely. Interesting, of course, that we've now basically fed the systems all digital available text that humanity has ever produced. So we are getting to the limit of, of, of the pure language side of things. And maybe as you, as you hint at there, to have a logical, to have a symbolical, maybe style engine run in parallel and leave the communication to the communication engine. We might, as we get to more intelligent AI, be actually getting to something that one might be able to call general artificial intelligence. Where do you see us on that spectrum and on that journey? It's a, it's a really interesting question again. And I think the, the difficult part about this question is that in most contexts, it's actually not a very useful one. Because if you would sort of put me behind a chat box and well, ask people to validate whether I was intelligent, uh, I'm pretty sure people would not find a consensus on that. And I think as we see systems behaving more and more intelligently, uh, we are finding more and more reasons to disqualify them from being generally intelligent. The fact is that I think most of us have used ChatGPT to produce, well, content for, for our own jobs, sort of replacing at least a part of ourselves to colleagues and well, people downstream without anyone noticing. Like the, the level of trust is maybe not super high yet, but you know, if you would just ask your nephew to write up something for your job, you also would send that to, to your colleagues straight away. So I think there's like this sense of like, it's very clear that we are creating value that I think two years ago, no one was thinking would be possible right now. Like we are not seeing, well, fully capable agents that can navigate the whole world and be consistent with everything. But there's this, this notion of these sparks of intelligence for sure. And I, I was at a, at a talk just last week where they, you know, they put up a picture of the first airplane, you know, like a, a biplane yeah. with the, the wooden frame and everything. And the, basically the point was like, we are not flying across the ocean in a, a biplane with this textile and, and the wood and everything. But still, that was the first airplane uh, that actually flew and it only flew for a bunch of meters, uh, but it still did. Uh, and I think we are potentially in a, in a scenario like that. And the technology will still have to evolve. Like we, we will need to find new structures, new engines, new approaches to, to making this thing work really well. But we've just gotten to the point where we are trusting AI with tasks that two years ago we thought would be the weak spot of AI. You know, the creative things like writing, art, those are things that we used to say, well, AI is going to do all of the, the boring advent for us and we will focus on the creative part. And now actually uh, AI is bringing that creative part as well. That has definitely surprised people, I think, and also the, the surprise generally how competent predictive text on steroids is that, that has caught people out for sure. But I have to say, I do like how it's doing the boring things really well. I'm, I'm not a big creative myself, but when we look at workflow, when we look at gathering bullet points, gathering our thoughts, doing that in 
very rough language, not presentable, more like we, you know, think rather than we would write. And then saying to the system, please, can you now go through that and make that sound like it's been meant to be written and shared in writing? Super cool. So a lot of the boring tasks that humans probably never like that much anyway, especially in the office world where we're talking about white collar roles. I think that's really of interest now. Yeah, absolutely. And well, for example, in, in our company, the way we look at the impact of, well, these new AI techniques on our own work is essentially that everyone is, uh, well, moving maybe from being like a software engineer to being more of a product manager. And by that, I mean that rather than saying how something should be done, we are now speaking more about what should be done and what success means. Because if you can give those things to a creative, intelligent model, it's going to be able to sort of fill in those gaps as well. Uh, and I think that's something that we basically started decades ago, especially in, mm. in computer science, where, you know, we used to, well, move around the electrical signals and the bits and, you know, bunch cards, you know, the, the very low level languages. Over time, we got from moving bits and bytes and individual mathematical operations to programming languages that really still describe how something should be done. But in many cases, it's something that's a lot closer to, to English and a lot more high level in terms of structure. And then, of course, today you have this change where you can start defining what needs to get done and that can get filled in. So we sort of become architects putting together those more well, AI-supported components into one structure. And I think as people, we will just sort of keep shifting up that stack, become architects and product managers much more. That's a really interesting vision. I like that. And you mentioned there your team over in Ghent, TechWolf. And you're on a really interesting journey globally now, revolutionizing the world of skills, utilizing AI. Now for our L&D listeners, of course, the, the skills piece is really of interest because when we're looking at reskilling, upskilling, performance, the whole world is pushing us now into this skills model as the new way of thinking, the new way of organizing work, the new way of hiring. So tell us a little bit more about what that approach to skills is and the interesting work that you guys are doing. Yeah, so, well, I would say TechWolf frames within this broader idea of the skill-based organization. And I feel like there's a lot of mystery around that concept in general, or there's a lot of very fuzzy conversation around that happening. But in essence, the way that we look at this is that work has been organized around jobs uh, for the past, well, basically for as long as we've known. So basically you look at well, the people you have as FTEs in certain positions, you look at the work as sort of aligning with those jobs. Now, what we're seeing is that, well, with all this technology change, with transformations happening everywhere, the requirements for skills at those jobs are changing faster than ever. So not only are the jobs changing quickly individually, we're also needing different proportions of different positions all the time. And we've seen with things like COVID that these shifts can happen incredibly quickly. And even without a, well, international disaster, Something like AI can really disrupt whole industries in one go. And then the, the challenge becomes, well, if you cannot open the box on those job titles and look inside what these people can actually do, a sustainable way of handling your human resources, it comes incredibly hard. And that, that is not just on the talent side, but also on the learning side, because basically, well, you have skill sets that are becoming more and more complex. You need to shift them faster than ever, uh, but actually you don't really have a view of what they are. Now, there's many companies within the skill space working on, well, this topic or a part of this topic. Uh, TechWolf is a little bit different to most, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. because we 
focus purely on the data problem. Because what we see is that there's plenty of systems that will, will go to prospects and customers and say, we will be the front door to your skills ecosystem. But actually, a lot of those systems are really struggling because if you depend on people entering their own skills, it turns out that that is actually a really hard task. If I gave you a blank sheet of paper and I asked you to write down your skills, you know, you would probably think, what did I do today? What's my job? Sort of look back a little bit. But really, there's so many more things that you can do that you, for example, worked on six months ago that you learned in prior experiences, skills that are a little bit dormant, but that you're not actively thinking of. And we can surface those from the data that we use. And quite crucially, I would say when we talk about skills, well, basically people will sort of point you towards HR and learning very easily. They'll say, mm -hmm. oh, skills, yeah, that's, you know, that's for those people over there. We radically disagree uh, with that idea. I think it's a bit as if, you know, if you would start talking about investment that people would say, oh, oh no, no, no. No, you go to finance, that's, that's their, their shop. No, skills are really, well, about work much more than about HR. And I think we need to be very conscious that when we start working with skill data, that it also needs to connect to work uh, to really deliver that value. Uh, because the, the skill-based organization is about opening that box, looking inside at those skills and really starting to organize work around skills. So what you're doing then is you're planning to have skills capacity. You're educating people on skills. You're sort of going to that new level of detail uh, and centering your ideas uh, around there. And what we do with TechWolf is we use data, both from the HR uh, and learning side, but also the, the business side uh, to really infer, infer exactly what skills people have. And do you have a use case there to dive a little bit deeper into the specifics of how you gather that data, how you infer skills from the data because you're not watching someone directly do the job are you no so we we believe in uh, using evidence of your skills uh, to infer the skills that you have so essentially rather than observing you and forming a judgment what we do is we will look at the different data points essentially from a demonstration of the skills that you have for example in digital populations typically we will look at project management tools uh, for example a lot of our customers use jira data uh, because people are essentially mm -hmm. working on these tickets that our AI can link to the skills that would be required to perform there. But what we see is that in each vertical, essentially, there are different data sources that really contribute to the rich skill data. So in pharma, what we do is we use publication trackers from our customers to link those skills to scientists. Because if you look at the HR and learning systems or just inside the productivity tools they use within the company, very often that doesn't say very much about those specialized skills. But then if you're wondering which skills are well, most valuable to know about and to optimize, it's those exact specialized skills again. So our strategy is to really go and look at those specific data sources that can help and inform about that. So instead of having the overall strategy in mind, thinking we want to measure absolutely everything, the key here is as the next step, if I understand correctly, to dive into the most interesting skills and not to try to sort of map the entire organization, map the entire human, but go step by step and focus on on the next step and that would be which skills are the ones we're trying to look at which skills are the ones we require how do we measure those yeah absolutely basically the the approach that we typically take with our customers is to establish this sort of 80 20 style um basis across the whole company so we say which are the the big chunks of data we can use uh, to benefit the skill data for almost everyone so we can get to the baseline quality level so that we have good skill data to feed into a talent marketplace or a learning system. 
Uh, but then we look at the business data sources typically um, that are required to address specific uh, challenges. So say, for example, that you that you're a professional services organization and that you're having trouble because projects are not getting stopped. But at the same time, you notice afterwards that people with the skills to actually work on those projects are not being linked there. Then, of course, it makes a ton of sense to bring a lot of data from the activities of those people on those projects to address that specific business challenge. And what we've seen is that this type of approach, it makes much more sense because you're actually using the data for a specific purpose, uh, which makes the business case for setting up that integration and bringing the data uh, a very easy one. But also, you're just not just blanket trying to integrate every data source under the sun, but you're actually um, choosing the ones that have high impact. And that strikes me as a really crucial and interesting step forward, because when we look at the skills piece generally, we often, we can be convinced within two or three sentences that the skills idea is fantastic, right? We could map the entire organization if we had the skills framework ready. We can then map each individual, and then we have these perfect maps with which we can plug gaps in the organization, find the talent we need to do certain roles, hire them. And all of that sounds just too good to be true. And when you look a little bit deeper, especially when we go a few years back in time, that, that suddenly turned out to be really difficult because someone had to build the framework. The framework then was not very agile because it had been produced by hand. And then suddenly, as you've already pointed out, organizations have said, well, the best thing we can do right now is self-report, which is, of course, ethically flawed and not just ethically, but from many other directions as well, right? Reporting your own skills is, is a highly flawed, in, in my view, approach. So I think what you're describing there is in a theory that many have struggled to wrap their heads around and taken cumbersome first steps, at least technically to make sense of this and to utilize that for a really big step forward that will have impact on the business. That's the piece I see really key here. I know that from conversations, HR and employees, the conversation around skills has had positive impacts. People find it much easier, it seems, to have collaborative discussions about their career and their trajectory when it's a skill-centered conversation rather than a strictly performance-centered conversation, but I'm getting the feeling that on the technical side, this is a huge step forward now. And where exactly going forward does the AI feature to help us utilize that data and make this more usable? Yeah, so the, the first piece, I would say, is, is really crossing this gap to the business. The way a lot of BO or skill-based projects are being executed today is by HR, for HR, and in HR, um, mm -hmm. which I, I wouldn't want to criticize that because there is a lot of value in those projects already. But what, it, what happens with these projects is that HR will typically struggle to prove the value of those initiatives to the business. So there will be super strong belief in the idea and in the execution, and there will be value to what HR is doing. But this really big vision of the skill-based organization is not materializing because in order to do that, you need to connect back to the business. And the first thing AI can do is draw in that data from the business and make sure that the data can actually be used for that. But there's a second piece as well. If we are looking at the way that, well, we use data today, uh, of course, we rely either on products or on data scientists. But the thing is that with a lot of questions that we would like to answer based on data, these questions, they change and they have slightly different flavors. And maybe you look at a dashboard and you think, well, you know, that's not exactly what I needed to know, but it's pretty close. 
but the, yeah. the result you're seeing is not useful just yet. And that's where AI will be really powerful as well. Like when I think about these co-pilots that are coming, I would say a data and BI co-pilot might be the most exciting one for me because essentially you could switch from painstakingly creating a dashboard to essentially talking to the data, asking questions, seeing that visualized in front of your eyes and saying, well, actually I meant a little bit more of this thing. And then seeing that shift uh, before your eyes as well. So basically that will take a lot of the, the support needed to run data that way to really enable the HR organization to also bring that data much more broadly in the organization. And I think we have a really big opportunity there as well for L&D and for performance support, because a key challenge is always measuring correctly, whether it's measuring the impact of a training or generally measuring strengths and weaknesses. Often in the past, they have been manager-reported or self-reported strengths and weaknesses, and then training gets put into place to, to improve upon those. This puts a really different spin on it, both with the data that can come from outside of L&D and from performance support, but also with the data I think that we're getting now with AI tools in learning and development, in performance support. We're, we're getting more personalized learning journeys. They in themselves will be able to provide data points back to the system in terms of how someone has developed and how someone has improved. Maybe not fully contextually as we would ideally like, because it's still a training environment, but those hints go in the right direction and form a starting point. But then also from performance support, if I'm utilizing this window I've got somewhere on my screen saying, I can ask a quick question here. I can, I can ask something about this project I'm trying to do. I can ask, how do we deal with a similar client that isn't a normal client? But I remember we did something like this last year. How did we do this last year? And then from the window, I get an answer. Those kind of interactions in terms of performance support, they also give an insight into what someone is capable of and where they are starting to ask questions. That gives us kind of the boundary as well. So. That would be if I put my learning hat on where I see a lot of useful data and the, the scope of that, the scope of L&D and performance support shifting within an organization and the importance it has within an organization. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I spent quite a lot of time thinking about in, in the context of L&D is really the measurement of impact. Because I think there's sort of three levels of measuring the impact of learning and development. And I think le learning and development is becoming, well, more important than ever, especially in this fast shifting landscape, because the, well, the value of working in a skill-based way is only really delivered when you can actually start upgrading people's skills, like giving them the skills that they're missing, because otherwise you just get the insights on the gaps, but that's not helping you very much. And the thing with L&D is... Up to today, we have often been limited to measuring L&D by the spend. And I think there's many exciting solutions that are going a level further than that and saying, we will now use the tests that we provide to people to measure whether, whether they've actually acquired the skills. But really, if I'm looking at this as a business leader, what I want to know is, well, which of the skills that we've trained people in are actually being applied, and especially over time. Like if we spent 5 million on giving data training to people, which people are actually working with data because that is mm. the impact. Like if you go to a hardware store and you buy a tool and you put it in the drawer, but you're not using it at all, that's not value being delivered. If you used that hammer 15 times in the past month, that is the, the value. And it's, it's much the same with skills. 
and the exciting thing of organizing our work around skills is essentially that measuring what skills people are applying becomes so much easier. Uh, and that makes L&D uh, an even more strategic topic uh, where you can come in and say, last time you gave me this type of budget, I came back to you and I made this impact financially because otherwise you would have missed these deadlines. You would have had to go out in the market to find talent at a much higher rate. Like these people might not have been able to, well, to actually stay relevant to the business anymore. So making those business cases, well, becomes a, a simpler thing, which I think is going to be fantastic for the L&D space. You touched upon something really cool there, that we're not just looking at what happens after we've done a training, that is critical. But of course, with the skills piece in place, we can also provide much more interesting information to L&D in the first place when we say we have a need. And where's the needs analysis? Well, it's here. We have the data. This is the requirement we have. We've measured it. We've measured it with this kind of data. It puts L&D and, and performance support into a completely different role when this has been provided up front and the ask is to fill a gap or to upskill a group of people or to reskill a group of people. That's for a specific reason. That's a, that's a very different ask to what we often describe as the L&D receiving the request for a specific training. Then yeah. L&D saying, well, let's investigate that a, a little bit deeper and the organization having neither the time nor the resources to spend that time to do that investigation, then the training gets delivered and then yes, it sits there as a pure cost piece, right? Yeah. And I think the reality is that with many of the potentially most impactful requests that are coming in from the business, that is just very hard to know where to start if you don't have the data. In case of one of our customers, for example, mm -hmm. they have thousands and thousands of people about which they just knew that they were developers. So the, the job title was developer, no information about the skills. Now, if you then go to, to HR or to L&D and you say, help me find and train 100 data scientists or cloud experts, well, you realistically cannot go to all of these people and figure out manually who the right people are, but even even with very limited insights on the skills, like it doesn't have to be perfect. You can get that shortlist. You can find the people that are most likely to either have those skills or to be likely to, to learn them very quickly and easily. And that is really changing a problem that you cannot even really start tackling into something that you can handle. And I think that is also shifting the type of, the type of problems that both HR and L&D will be able to tackle. You're saying that we need to move in the right direction. We can simplify the task. We can reduce the list. We can identify the most likely. All of those are terms that tell me that I'm moving in the right direction, but I'm not finding the solution. And I often find in discussions at the moment about AI that people focus too much on the endpoint. They ask, well, is the system perfect? Will your system choose for me exactly the three people without bias and correctly that should go on this reskilling program. And if that's the thinking we approach this with, and that's how we approach AI, then I think we're going to miss a lot of opportunities. And we're basically asking the wrong question because anyone who's ever asked, is this the perfect system of any system? The answer would usually have to be no, because no system is absolutely perfect. But for some reason, we seem to expect this of AI. We have our concerns and they are justified. Bias and ethics are concerns that have to be 
addressed. And it's a good thing that we're talking about them because our society is nowhere near being as perfect as we'd like it to be. And so the discussion and AI might help us there. But I find this is something that I'd really like people to think about more. Where is the next step? How big a difference can we make in the right direction rather than is the solution perfect? Is this something you come across a lot in the conversations you have around AI? Yeah, I would say it's a very frequent thing. And this type of well, basically analysis paralysis is quite mm -hmm. common as well. I would say one of the main drivers that we see for people being so perfectionist around AI and data is that they spend so much time thinking about the system that they don't spend enough time thinking about what it's going to do. And they don't spend enough time doing for sure. Because there's this interesting dynamic around data and AI results where basically if you don't know what you're wanting to do with that exactly, then essentially only perfection is good enough because only perfection is what will deliver any use case. Now, if you have a specific task at hand, if you want to do something really specific, then, well, if you can drive that value, then you know the data is good enough. And I think the recipe here is to be really specific about what we want to do with data and with AI, finding a use case. And it doesn't have to be a really big thing. I think, especially from, from HR and L&D teams that we speak to, like the, the first thing is always saying, we need a huge win. And we go in and we say, no, actually, you need a small win. Like you need to go in, find a business problem that you can solve with this, and you need to just solve it. And if, if it's a small one, if it's a slightly bigger one, that doesn't really matter so much. What, what matters is that you actually solve it and that you have that impact with the data because then you know that your data is good enough to drive business value. And that sort of grows your comfort zone with the system that you have. And of course, before you get started with anything, before you take that to the business, you want to make sure that you have achieved that baseline so that it can be useful. But basically the mindset of let's prove the value by applying it and by doing it in a safe and controlled environment and then grow our comfort zone. That is so much more useful than spending months or even years talking about getting to perfection, because very much like when you're, when you're building a product as a startup, if you don't go to market, you actually don't know if you're building the right thing and you might build it perfectly only to realize later on that it's the wrong thing. Exactly. A very good, a very good point and reminder there. And what's often overlooked is that with smaller use cases that we deliver quicker, where you can prove the value. There's also a steep learning curve involved for both sides. And that's a benefit as well, because that will benefit the next implementation, the next use case. And that iterative process has so much more potential to end up in a better place than over theorizing and trying to implement something long-term. And then on top of that, I find myself advising organizations generally at the moment saying, there has, there has never been a time that has been more crucial to run short use cases because the market is shifting, the tools are shifting, the capabilities are shifting. If you plan for too long and try to implement something perfect, your time scales are already outside of the scope of the unknowns. You don't know how other tools will improve. You don't know what's shifting in the AI landscape. So generally. The learning and iterative process is far better. Of course, it's the more arduous one. It sounds much cleaner, right? To deliver the big solution and say, we, we want this big win. It's going to be huge. It's going to be over three years. And let's get to the point that we can sign that off. That sounds cleaner. That sounds nicer. But I think in the current environment, 
it's really key that we work our way forwards one step at a time. As you said, develop our comfort zone and learn as we celebrate these small wins. Yeah, and I think even with perfect technology, that would still be the best approach because essentially, for example, when we're talking about something like the skill-based organization, but also when we're talking about AI in general, the technology component is one side, but there's also the mindset and the perspective that we take as people. And for example, in case of the skill-based organization, well, if you really want to go skill-based, your mind needs to jump to skills first when you're solving a problem. So when you look at work, you have to think in terms of what skills do I need to solve this, not what jobs do I need to solve this? You know, when you start planning, you need to think in terms of what, which skills and capabilities do I need to build rather than which FDEs do I need on board? So there's a lot of that is just the way we look at things. And the only way to transition into that type of mindset is really by starting to do things like seeing the value and iteratively transitioning the way you look at things as well. And outside of HR, for example, if we look at just using ChatGPT in, in while well, creating PowerPoint presentation and everything, you might run a million experiments on like, oh, can ChatGPT do this? Can it do that? Like be super scientific about it. At the same time, there's, well, very little time lost to just like asking ChatGPT to, to try something, to do something, and then seeing if you can use it. And I find that the people that will just go ahead and try it, and that doesn't mean letting it generate a, a whole text and sending it to people without checking it, of course, it's still in a safe environment, but just by going in and doing it in a safe environment, people find out what actually drives value so much faster. And they start thinking of, I need to create this piece of content. If I do these things, then I have the right materials in place to really set this AI up for success in this task. And what you see is that they just move so much faster. They deliver more quality using new tooling because they go hands-on. What I really love about these conversations is very often they end with that we come back without having planned to, that at the center is the human. At the center is a human mindset that is trying to solve a problem. At the center is a human approach to this. And even though AI might be all around us in different forms and still developing, all of those other tools at the center is the human who will use them and who will do the job and who might be accelerated by this, but it's still a human-centered environment, at least, at least for some time, <laughs> I would like to say. So that's a really nice note to finish on and loop back to the human element and the human factor in all of that. But Jeroen, it's been really fun to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us today. And yeah, I've really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, me too. It's my pleasure. Awesome.